Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. I'm a co-host with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. Thanks so much for listening in. This week we have an episode that I recorded a couple years back with Christian Hoffreiter about his book on the Old Testament and genocide. And we're going to rerun it this week because I think it's a really uh, important book and a really insightful one. So I hope you find it useful. And it's a it's a book I've gone back to several times and and uh, it's informed my understanding of the progression of Christian thinking about violence in the Old Testament. Uh, also, I wanted to selfishly just take the opportunity too to mention that I have a book coming out very shortly. In fact, I think it's already printed and available soon. So it's called Portraying Violence in the Hebrew Bible and it's published by Cambridge University Press. So if that's of interest to you, check it out. It ain't cheap, uh, but if you have lots of money to drop on a book, it's a good one. And uh, if not, maybe you're connected to a library that would be interested in purchasing it. So just thought I'd mention that, and because we're on the theme of violence in the Old Testament here with this episode. So enjoy the episode, and I hope everyone's doing okay in lockdown and that you're all staying healthy and well. Thanks so much for listening, for your support, and for your encouragement along the way. Take care. Welcome to OnScript. I'm Matt Lynch. Our guest today is Christian Hoffreiter, who is the director of the Zacharias Institute in Vienna and is also a research fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. He's the author of a book that we're going to be discussing today, Making Sense of Old Testament Genocide, Christian Interpretations of Harem Passages, published by Oxford University Press this year, 2018. Christian, welcome to OnScript. Thanks for having me on, Matt. First, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about your work in Austria and and what it is that you do on a daily basis and the kind of research that you're uh, taking part in. Well, what I do now on a day-to-day basis is really best summed up in a, in a slogan that we use, helping thinkers believe and helping believers think. That's uh, why we exist. Uh, we aim to build bridges between people who say, well, this whole God thing, I'm not sure it makes sense to me and that Bible thing and so on. And also Christians who say, well, I do believe in God. I do read the Bible, but I have these big questions that I'd like to think through. And so to help people along that way, that's really my task and uh, what I love doing and get to do. Yeah, and I should, I should probably say you're based in Vienna um, and then you're, you're, you're working primarily in Austria, and do you do you work more widely across Europe, or where's what's the scope of your work? So the main focus is on the German-speaking world, Austria, Germany, Switzerland. Uh, I do a lot of speaking at universities, uh, preferably to audiences that aren't all already convinced that faith in God makes sense, uh, or a particular faith in God makes sense. So I, I love that interaction with students in particular. But I do travel more widely as well. I come back to Oxford to lecture at uh, our Center for Christian Apologetics there and uh, have also been further afield. But it's always that same ethos of engaging people by taking their questions seriously and helping them reason through it while we as well figure out how to reason through them. Yeah, I, I like that you, you focus both on helping Christians think and helping uh 
what was the other side of it? So helping Christians, yeah, helping thinkers believe. Um, Because I've always thought that sometimes apologetics gets stereotyped into just a kind of evangelistic method or something like that, when a lot of it is actually maybe belongs rightly within discipleship, uh, where it's it's helping Christians who who have made some kind of faith commitment understand the 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 foundations of their own belief system in a more um, you know, robust and substantial way. Um, so, so you, I, I'm curious then, as you engage with university students in Europe and, and sometimes come back to the UK as well, do you see a difference in the kinds of questions that university students are wrestling with across the German-speaking university world and in the UK? Or are they pretty much wrestling with some of the 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 same sorts of questions i think in some sense the questions are very similar they're age-old questions questions of if god exists and is good and loving why would he permit so much suffering and injustice in the world and other questions like that but in another sense there's also a difference in that the uk in my experience still has more of a Christian heritage that people are aware of. Even students, they might not actually be uh, believers in the sense they have personal faith, uh, but it, they seem somewhat closer still to the Christian tradition, to the Christian faith, than some of the students that I meet in Austria, Germany, and Switzerland. Of course, that's a generalization, but overall I'd say that there is a difference in that way. And it was it out of that work with university students that um, the the impetus for your current book on understanding Old Testament genocide came? Was it was it through those engagements that you, you decided, hey, I need to go back to the foundations, look at how Christians have, Christians and Jews have wrestled with the problem of violence? Well, it goes a bit further back than that is, and is more personal. So it goes back to, one, my love for Jesus and the Bible. I'm a Christian. I'm excited about who Jesus is, I'm, I'm excited about the Bible, but I'm also troubled personally by some of the texts that I find written in the Bible, and that was combined with my experience of the aftermath of genocide in Rwanda, where I spent several weeks and met survivors of genocide, and the juxtaposition of talking with survivors of, of genocide and hearing very explicit descriptions of uh, massacres carried out with machetes in hand, with the, some of the texts in the Bible that seem to describe something fairly similar, that was really what uh, prompted me personally to say, I want to know how I should think about these texts, given the, the reality of genocide in our world. So how is it that you ended up uh, in Rwanda, and, and what, was, you know, what was that experience um, like for you? Well, I was a guest of the Anglican Church there, and... Uh, just seeing the kind of work that the church was doing in the country in terms of reconciliation even between uh, perpetrators and victims or survivors who had lost family members uh, and in terms of general Christian witness and discipleship. So it was an absolutely fascinating and life-changing experience, I would say. What year was that? Oh, that was uh, back in 2005, so 11 years after the genocide, which happened in 94. It's interesting, in that same year, um, I, I was at Regent College in Vancouver, and I took, a, I took a 
class, a summer class that they offered with Gary Haugen, who's the, he's the founder of, IJM, it, yes, yeah, yes. of IJM. And he was teaching a class called Biblical Justice Global Witness. And of course, he was the, I forget exactly what his role was, State Department witness um, for the genocide in Rwanda. And he had to go back and actually basically reconstruct the crime. And, and it, was the gen, it was the Rwandan genocide that prompted him to start IJM. And and of course they've gone on to do some some really amazing work. So that that was a that was a pretty eye opening and and life changing class for me. Yeah, um, it's not bad. Yeah, yeah, and and so you know I've had a not exactly the same journey, but but in a similar way um, have have felt both challenged in the classroom by. Uh, people I've spoken with, both believers and non-believers, about the problem of violence, but then my own engagement with the Old Testament as well, feeling um, feeling challenged by by these texts. And so, so then how did you decide what tack to take in your own research into that problem of violence in the Old Testament? There are a lot of routes you could have taken. You could have tried to resolve it morally, or um, you could have tried to uh, look at contemporary approaches, but you took this historical approach. What was what was the journey toward that? Well, the journey toward that was that perhaps that's the only thing I thought I'd be able to do, because more capable and better equipped people had already uh, attempted to address this issue from a contemporary analytical philosophical Perspective. There was a lot of contemporary, very interesting work out there. Some very high-level, uh, world-renowned uh, uh, acad- uh, academic philosophers in the analytical tradition have tackled this. And then there were um, specialists in the Hebrew Bible who had looked at it, sort of in a historical uh, setting, using the historical critical method. And I love history, and I was interested in in history and church history, and so I was quite keen to find out. What can we learn from those who've gone before us as Christians who've read these texts as Holy Scripture? And that just uh, was an approach that fitted with my own proclivities and interests. And, uh, and it turned out to be a great experience. I mean, as you know, uh, it can be quite lonely and sometimes hard to stay focused on a doctoral research project. But I've never found it to be boring or um, so I never lost interest uh, because it was very varied. Um, I went through the centuries and through the different interpreters, and so I learned a lot. Yeah, well, I have to say um, there are a lot of books on the problem of violence in the Old Testament, but there there was a gaping hole in this area. And in fact, I had a I had an MA student uh, that I'm supervising, and originally he had proposed to do a project on early Christian wrestlings with the problem of violence in the Old Testament. He ended up doing a different project, but when he proposed that, I said to him, I've been looking for that book. And then when I saw your book had come out and actually done that plus a lot more, I thought, wow, this is fantastic. And I, I, I thought it was such a good book. I really enjoyed reading it. It was I've read a lot in the area of violence in the Old Testament, but but this is this is a book that's needed. And um, so it really fills a gap in the field, um, but it's also engaging read. So I, I really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad um, I found one reader who thinks that. So uh. <laughs> I think you'll find a lot more. Um, maybe it'd be helpful if we set the stage for what it is you're doing in the book um, by by talking about these five axioms that you outline at the beginning of your book. And I, and 
just to give our our listeners a sense of where you're going, you're you're looking through history at Jewish and Christian um, interpretations of the problem of genocide in the Bible, and we'll, we can define the the Hebrew term harem in a moment. But what are these five axioms, and what role do they play in your book? So I, I like this from one of the analytical philosophers who. Uh, looked at this problem and said, well, why are these sects so problematic for us? His name is Randall Rouser. And I modified it slightly, but essentially um, it looks at convictions that most Christians have and uh, the texts introduce attention into those convictions. The first one is that God is good. Second, the Bible is true. Third, genocide is atrocious. Very few Christians today would want to say, well, God isn't good, or the Bible isn't true, or genocide isn't atrocious. At least historically, those were quite strongly held Christian convictions. But then if you add to that the observation, more than an axiom, that according to the Bible, God commanded and commended genocide, you get attention. Because you have to give up one of the three. Either God isn't good, or the Bible isn't true, or genocide isn't atrocious. Or your observation for isn't correct, and it's actually not true that according to the Bible, God commanded and commanded genocide. So those are the logical options that uh, I saw, and it, it works very well in terms of understanding the history of interpretation, because you can see how the various ways of reading these texts really fall quite neatly into one of those categories, how they, play, how, how they consist of an interplay between those various axioms and observations. Yeah, and then you've got your fifth one, which I guess is more of a, a, a deduction from, or a, a you know, a follow-on from the four points, which is that a good being, let alone a supremely good being, would never command an atrocity. So quite, uh, you need that because yeah. otherwise you could you you could uphold everything and just say, well, but then in this case, a supremely good being just commanded an atrocity. Uh, I didn't highlight it because, in a sense, that. In the effective history, so the way people have actually read these texts, no one has really argued about this and said, well, this is an atrocity, but sometimes it could be in commands an atrocity. So that's a theoretical option where you could go, but historically no one has gone there. So I, I didn't, but it's, you're quite right to remind me that uh, there are five and, and we should uh, mention all five. <laughs> yeah, and then you've also chosen to, you had to limit your study in some ways. So you focus on harem texts, and this is a Hebrew term. Maybe if you could define that and explain a little bit of, of what, you, what you saw. You know, if you had to kind of d- describe some of the broad contours of history in, in, re- in interpreting that Hebrew concept or, or that issue in the Bible, uh, what are some of those broad contours? So first, you know, defining that term and then some of those broad contours. Right, so the term cherem uh, has a number of meanings. The one I was most interested, or I was uniquely interested in, was the war harem, uh, which means to devote a population to destruction in the context of war, to annihilate them with a sacral connotation, and uh, inc- men, women, and children. So this is what it means. So you can see the affinity of the description of the war harem, uh, two descriptions or definitions of genocide. Obviously, genocide is a 20th century term that was coined in the 40s, but uh, it describes something somewhat comparable, though, of course, one can discuss that in detail. So why did I focus on harem? Because I felt it was the most 
blatant or most difficult, the most violent example that I could take. And if I could find uh, a way of faithfully and wisely reading these texts, then it should be possible to apply what I learn when I read these texts to other texts as well. And and so... um as you looked at the history of interpretation of the harem text, you primarily let's you know think about the book of Joshua and the command to destroy the Canaanites that comes you know prior to that in Deuteronomy. At what point in, in the history of interpretation do interpreters start wrestling with that as an actual problem to be dealt with? So. In a sense, you could say that the criticism of violence already starts within the Old Testament. Uh, think of Hosea, uh, sort of the criticism there of Jezreel and the house of Jehu. Uh, another point that you could lift out is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus saying, you have heard it said that, you know, hate your love, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemies. So there are many earlier points, but then specifically when it comes to Cherem, and Old Testament wars, really the second century religious leader Marcion, Marcion of Sinope, is uh, the person that focuses the attention of really the Christian church on this. And, and after him, you can't ignore these texts any longer uh, and you can't ignore his criticism. Yeah, so um, is. So we, we we've got Marcion in the in the second century, end of the first century, early second century, um, and he's you know he takes a pretty radical solution because for him the God of the Old Testament is abhorrent and and a, a you know a lesser deity than the God of the New Testament revealed in Jesus. Um, so how does Marcion get to the point like how? How do how do we get to the point where there's someone like Marcion who's lobbying this critique at the Old Testament? Um, I I know about him, but I don't really know a lot of how he you know what the context out of which he comes. Yeah, so it's fascinating to me that it is Marcion and not some Gnostic or some pagan philosopher who raises this criticism first. Uh, this is significant because Marcion is really shaped by what he understands of Jesus and Paul. So Marcion certainly considered himself a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. He uh, had a canon, actually the first New Testament canon, so a list of books that he thought should form part of the Bible for Christians, uh, a version of Luke, and uh, also 10 epistles of Paul. So it was really his reading of Luke and his reading of Paul that shaped his worldview. So in a sense, you can say the criticism of these texts has its impetus in a reading of Jesus and Paul. So I I think that's quite significant historically. Now, of course, the solution Marcion proposes wasn't really acceptable to the emerging, emergent Christian church. His solution was to say, okay, premise one, God is good. We have to get rid of this. And the way we do it is to say there are two gods. So the God of the Jewish scriptures is not the good God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but is the Demiurge, the one who created everything. But he's just, perhaps, perhaps even evil. And uh, in any event, he's not the, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think pointing out the problem, he does really based on his reading of 
Paul and Jesus. Uh, his solution, of course, goes far beyond them, and uh, you can see why Christians wouldn't have accepted it then and, and don't find it acceptable now. Do you find any affinity between the critique of Marcion, you know, maybe not his solution, but uh, the critique of Marcion and contemporary Christian critiques of the problem of violence in the Old Testament? Well, I think what Marcion does very well, and many others follow him, is to take particular uh, specific Old Testament stories or quotations and set them side by side with quotations from Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and say, look, there's a tension here. Now, he would say there is an irreconcilable contradiction, which is, for my money, too much, but that there is a tension is obvious, and he just says, well, listen, we need to say something about this tension. So in that sense, I think it resonates. Now, another way in which it resonates with contemporary language is that people like to talk or sometimes often talk about the Old Testament God, as though that Old Testament God were completely different from the New Testament God. Uh, and in a sense, that language has a Marcionite ring to it. Now, very few of those who use that language today mean to say there is actually an entity, a God, separate from a second entity, another God, the way Marcion did. But the language definitely has some similarities to, to Marcionite talk. Yeah, and I think the other similarity th that I find is, I don't know if Marcion spoke this way specifically, but uh, is the, the use of the phrase tribalistic deity to refer to the God of the Old Testament. And this by Christians, too, and, and we often saying, well, you know, in the Old Testament, you have the projection of a people who were tribalistic, and they they projected a God who was violent because they themselves were violent and that's the kind of God they wanted. Um, and then that's often, as you said, set against radically the God we see revealed in Jesus. And so I think it, it, I'd be curious to see what you think, but it seems like that's another foundational premise in contemporary Christian discourse about the problem of violence that we see in Jesus the God uh, the, a revelation of who God truly is, and moreover, that God is a God who loves and forgives his enemies. And so from there, then we work outward to other Old Testament texts, and we have to figure out then what to do with the Old Testament. We have to figure out what to do with this Bible. Well, so as a hermeneutical approach, so approach of an approach to interpretation, I think looking at Jesus and beginning and ending with Jesus, Jesus Christ, I think makes a lot of sense if one is a Christian, uh, because for us uh, it is paramount that when we look at Jesus, we see God, we see God in the flesh, and it's the He is the Word, uh, He is the Word made flesh. So that's also how I read the Bible, but. Beginning with that and then ending up saying the Old Testament is nothing but the projection of a tribe that's warfaring and self-serving uh, is a very long way and it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't follow. One doesn't lead to the next. So I would, have, I would share that starting point, but I would not arrive at that conclusion. Same conclusion. Yeah. And so, so let's move to origin, because I think for a lot of Christians, um, again, contemporary Christians wrestling with this problem, um, it's, it's Origen who gives 
for a lot of people is the key to um to this freedom to read the old testament um especially the violent text allegorically um so so what kind of shifts do we see in origins approach to the harem texts in joshua and deuteronomy and elsewhere well, it's, it's, it's interesting you should say that Origen sort of gives people permission to read the text in that way because obviously for um, most uh, Orthodox with a small o uh, students of church history, Origen is mostly known as a heretic. You know, he was branded as a heretic, the father of originism. And so I think... Um, Many listeners may think, well, if this is really what Origen does, then we should probably stay clear of it. So the reason this way of reading the scriptures have become has become so influential is, one, that Origen didn't invent it. He just did what he learned from others before him. Philo, who was a Jew, contemporary with Jesus, uh, Barnabas. Uh, Justin Martyr uh, and Clement of Alexandria and then so Origen does something that others have done before him but more importantly uh, Origen's reading then is replicated in people who are recognized saints at least in the Western Church so Gregory the Great, John Cassian the father of sort of monasticism in the West in the monastic spirituality Isidore of Seville another saint and then it becomes the stable reading of the Glossa Ordinaria which as you know, is sort of the study Bible of the Middle Ages. So it's a strong tradition. Origen is prolific and influential in it, but uh, Origen would, if one reads it that way, one has many more examples to point to other than Origen himself. I think that's the first point. The second point I've already alluded to. So Origen is, is not an inventor, an innovator in that way. He does what others have done before him to read the text allegorically. Actually, by that time that Origen works in the third century, it was commonly understood that any text that was inspired, that was somehow a holy text, was capable of being interpreted in a spiritual way, in a figurative way. That was part and parcel. So if you denied that, that would be tantamount to denying that the text is inspired. So that was absolutely the way holy texts were read at that time. Origen himself says, well, where do I get the permission to read it allegorically? I get it from Paul. He quotes 1 Corinthians a lot. He quotes Galatians a lot. So he says, I'm doing what Paul does here, for instance, reading Hagar uh, allegorically in Galatians 4 and so on. Uh, And two, my interpretation is not random either. It's also what I find in Paul when Paul talks about the spiritual armor, he talks about spiritual warfare, warfare not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, Ephesians 6. So Origen is actually a lot more biblicist in his figurative reading that uh, those who haven't actually read him might surmise. And so taking these two things together, the example of Paul and the specific content that Paul gives to, to warfare, Origen does one thing that is new. He uses the spiritual reading as a response to outside critique. That, so that is where he is the first to do it, not the last to do it. People like Celsus, the Neoplatonic philosopher who wrote about uh, 70 years before Origen responded to him. And uh, Origen says, well, listen, you misunderstand the nature of these texts. Of course, if you read it sort of in a stupid, literalistic, wooden fashion, you will go astray. And the heretics do that. 
And Origen also says that the Jews do this, so that's obviously a, a problem for us, seeing what critiques of Judaism have led to in, in terms of the history of the Christian church and our guilt towards the Jewish people. But Origen, writing in the third century, that's what he says. And then says, well, seeing that the literalistic reading is wrong, we need to read it in a spiritual way. And, and he does that, I think, very, very beautifully in many instances. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to read um, one of uh, a, a quote from his uh, homily on Joshua, uh, and this is from page 67 in your book. And he writes, within us are the Canaanites, within us are the Perizzites, here are the Jebusites. In what way must we exert ourselves? How vigilant must we be, or for how long must we persevere, so that when all these breeds of vices have been forced to flee, our land may rest from war at last. And so he he takes he takes the the different the, you know the seven Canaanite nations and he spiritualizes them as vices within the believer that need to be exterminated and put to death. And so and so does he then in doing that um, also deny that a good God would literally command the extermination of these enemies, or is he saying it's both end? It's definitely both end for origin, no question about it. So he does not deny the historicity, he assumes it. It's very clear from a number of the passages that I, I exegete uh, in the book. Uh, what he does say is, for us Christians, there's neither here nor there. Uh, what the Holy Spirit says to the Christian church is this. This is why this is Holy Scripture for us. That's the meaning that's intended by the divine author, the Holy Spirit of the Scriptures. And this is how the church is to read it. Um, I mean, the way he does it, there is um, a beautiful passage in, in another one of those homilies where or you can see origin at work. Uh, he's, I, I quote it, he says, Unless those physical wars bore the figure of spiritual wars, I do not think the books of Jewish history could ever have been handed down by the apostles to the disciples of Christ who came to teach peace so that they could be read in the churches. For what good was the description of wars to those to whom Jesus said, My peace I give to you, my peace I leave to you, and so on. Do not avenge yourself. So, origin Unlike Marcion says, I accept the decision of Jesus and the apostles to say we should read these texts. So I accept these texts, the Jewish scriptures, as holy, as holy scripture. And I accept that we should read them in the church because I am a disciple of the disciples of the apostles who are disciples of Christ. So he argues as a faithful son of the church, as it were. That's why I accept the scriptures. But also, he says, I see the tension. I see Jesus says, don't avenge yourself, you know, love your enemies. And here we read of these wars. So how do I resolve this tension? Well, clearly, the literal sense must not be the only sense. And the sense that is significant for us, there must be more to this text. So I, I find it a quite beautiful example to see why Origen accepts it on the strength of the example of the apostles and their disciples. And then how Origen reasons out the tension saying, well, of course I give priority to what Jesus says about loving your enemy, so therefore there must be this other meaning in it for us reading it in Christian uh, settings. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful approach, and, and one that in practice a lot of Christians already 
adhere to, you know, in the way that sermons are preached on books like Joshua. You know, we we don't tend to to preach this book as a call to finish the job literally uh, that that Joshua left incomplete. I think the challenge maybe that that origin doesn't address for a lot of Christians is that God would have ever commanded it. Origen doesn't seem to mind that issue. You know, it, maybe he relegates it to a different dispensation and that was something God did in the past. It was limited to that era and now that no longer has ongoing value for us as Christians. Um, so I think I think that's where maybe Origen doesn't provide a resolution that a lot of contemporary interpreters of the Bible would want. Is that fair? That's right. I think that's right. If you stick with origin and limit yourself to origin, that's where you would end up. And it is, he does say, sort of, there's this, this difference in dispensation. I mean, what, one thing that does suggest to me, just as an observation, is that today we have very strong moral intuitions about non-combatant immunity, in particularly the fate of children, women, the elderly in war. And one thing that I realized through my studies is that this intuition was not so strong, so well attested, so widespread in, the, in antiquity. So none of the pagan critics of Christianity raises this point. Why? Because it clearly wasn't an issue for them, or at least it's uh, it is, is one good explanation for it. So what does that mean for us as we think about these texts? Well, one thing it does mean is the reason why you and I and our contemporaries, at least in the West, find these texts so very problematic is that Jesus was so successful in shaping our moral intuitions. The ethos of the Sermon on the Mount, the love of enemy, the dignity of all humankind, those of other races, those of other religious persuasions, those of other backgrounds, that's not self-evident, you know, much as it is mentioned in the, in the Declaration of Independence. It hasn't been self-evident to all humankind uh, for all time. And the reason we feel so strongly about it is actually one outcome of Jesus Christ and his teaching example being very successful in shaping our moral intuitions. Um, so in a sense, the pro- and you see that beginning with Marcion. Marcion doesn't come up with the problem de novo. It's the teaching and practice and example of Jesus that causes these texts to be problematic for him in the first place. Yeah, so because we live downstream from Jesus, we're able to raise the objection that we wouldn't otherwise be able to raise um, you know, without without his teachings. That's right. I mean, we might theoretically be able, but I think as a matter of historical fact, the, 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 the fact is the reason we feel so strongly about it is, uh, to a large degree, the a fruit of the, the influence of the gospel on our moral intuition. Right. Are you ready for a speed round? Sure. Okay. So the, the idea is that I ask questions and you've got a maximum of about, let's say, 10 seconds to, to give your response. All right. What's the most influential book in biblical or theological studies in the last 50 years? So, I have no idea, to be honest. 50 biblical or theological studies? Yep. You can, you can pick either one. Okay. Um, I'm going to say... I'm going to say, what was a game changer? Um, 
I don't know. One thing that I find uh, a really interesting approach to the New Testament, it's probably not, you know, I think it should be so influential, is Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Balkum. I'm just going to pick that one. I think that's a novel, interesting approach to questions of historicity that I'm just going to name uh, more as a desideratum than a statement of fact. Okay. What's the constructive role of doubt for a believer? Oh, doubt is essential because without doubt, uh, we would very quickly become full of pride. We would like empathy uh, and we would almost certainly not only be wrong, but remain wrong uh, in, in many of our convictions. What music is likely to be heard on your playlist? Anything from Bach to... Uh, contemporary worship. Now, uh, you're Austrian, is that right? I am. Are you Austrian? Okay. So uh, it's time for Austrian stereotypes. Um, can, can you guess what I'm going to ask now? I have suspicions. Okay. Are, are the hills truly alive with the sound of music? Of course. Okay. It's, in the, it's in the movie. Didn't you see? Yeah I, yeah, I just wanted to confirm if in reality, you know, that's the case. I, I did spend a summer in Schladming. Oh, uh, one, uh, one time. Uh, torchbearers. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I did okay. their um, summer mountain climbing program uh, back in, I think it was in 2000. Uh, so I, I found that to be the case. I just wanted to see if you, you could confirm that. Um, so how do you solve a problem like Maria? Uh, by embracing her. Okay. And uh, can you yodel? Not really. Otherwise, you'll make me do it. Well, uh, okay. You, are you just trying to get out of it? No, no, I really can't. Okay. I'd be delighted to if I could. Do you have good friends who can yodel? Uh, yes, my mother can yodel. So. Do you think she'd be willing to send a recording? I can ask her. Okay. Uh, what do you think of Arnie? He'll be back. <laughs> All right, that's enough of the stereotypes. Um, uh, do you eat schnitzel? Breakfast, lunch, and supper. What's, what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Oh, um, I think the idea that ancient authors don't deserve the benefit of the doubt. That's a good one. All right. Do you have any hidden talents? Well, I mean, not like I know your talents anyway. So <laughs> talents that wouldn't otherwise land on your CV. Hmm. I, I mean, if nothing springs to mind, that sort of, I mean, uh, a friend of mine used to say, well, he can, he can glue things really, really well, and he's a, handy, a handyman. I am not. So what is a hidden talent? You know, the others would be more stereotypes like skiing, and I mean, that's not a talent anyways. That's just an Austrian stereotype that we're born with skis. So, no, I'm afraid I think I'm, I'm coming up blank. Probably, so therefore, my hidden talent is excessive humility. <laughs> um, all right, so I, I see you're sitting by your bookshelf. So I'd like you, at, uh, what's maybe, I don't know what books you have on your desk, but if you could pick the closest book to you and then turn to page 56 and, and read the first full sentence. The problem is that the closest book to me is, so it's mine. Okay, it has to be besides your own book. Okay, uh, let's uh, page 56. 
and then first sentence, yeah, you're doing the C.S. Lewis game, you're trying to complete, <laughs> uh, tell me which author and so on. The first full sentence, yes. Yeah, and I might need to translate you to translate it. No, no, it is English. The quality of Christian love transcended transcended the highest in Judaism and Hellenism. Hmm. Okay, I can't guess the author of that. Who was that? The author is Roland Bainton, Christian Attitudes Toward War and Peace. Okay. What's one thing that you don't get about the British? Ha! I'm married to uh, an English woman, so I have to be careful what I say. And... Um, what do I not get about the British? I mean, I lived in, in England for seven years, so very little surprises me. Um, How about I when think, you first got there? What yeah, was it, you know? Yes, so... Uh, well, I, one thing that is still difficult to understand is why it is such an art form to be awkward when you introduce yourself. But basically, the, the one rule about introducing yourself to people who you don't know is you have to do it awkwardly. Then you've done it correctly. That, that's uh, Kate Fox's observation in, in uh, watching the English. And, uh, and I, 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 that, that is kind of, the, I still find that remarkable. And so you kind of, how does that awkwardness come across? What are some of the well, mannerisms? I'm not quite sure, you know, outstretched hand or then maybe no hand at all. Or, I mean, who speaks first and do you go to people and introduce yourself? And so, I mean, you certainly don't go like, you know, in America, you know, hey, I'm Bob, you know, yeah. I'm a cattle rancher. <laughs> and uh, people are like, hold on, too much information, you know, this is a, no need to disclose all this. I mean, even hello, I'm Bob is too much. So. Yeah, so it's basically, uh, I love it, but it's, it, it's still a social code that I don't always find uh, perfectly easy to read. <laughs> Last question. What, um, what's a question in your apologetics work as you engage with, with different groups and audiences and universities and so on that you find most challenging and perplexing to address? So I think kind of the hiddenness of God is, is hard uh, you know, when people say, well, why isn't God more obvious? But less so on a philosophical level, but just on a personal level. If somebody tells me, listen, I really, really, really quite like to believe. And I have prayed, but I just have the sense that God has an answered. So uh, now my conviction is God has answered by becoming one of us, human. And we have a good, reliable record of what it looks like to encounter God in the flesh. Uh, but still, I, I find, even, even, even though I think there is a way that we can uh, address this question that is actually helpful, uh, I still find this is sometimes a, a difficult question. Uh, why? Because it's very heartfelt and it comes from an honest, inquiring heart that would like to be, generally would like to believe. Mm. Yeah, rather than a, a kind of cheap shot gotcha question from the sidelines this is this is a question people are, are truly feeling and wrestling with yes except the intellectual ones you know they some of them are difficult but they're not existentially so difficult and and also i think there are robust ways of thinking about uh, the ways uh, about the objections to the faith that are often raised 
All right. Well, we're we're running short on time, but we and we've barely gotten past origin. Um, but I, I want to just ask about Augustine and the divine command theory because that's a not only was it deeply influential, but it's it's also still prevalent in contemporary Christian uh, discourse about the problem of violence. So um, he Augustine takes takes us into a new direction, um, takes us in a new direction with divine command theory. Could you just describe what that is and um, and then what he contributes to Christian reflections on harem texts? Exactly. So divine command theory basically says that it is God's command that determines whether a given action is good or bad. Uh, there is no higher standard outside God to which one might appeal. There's nothing intrinsic to the action itself, but it's really God's speech act that determines uh, what is good or bad. So if you apply this and to the Cherem text and combine it with some of the other premises, uh, obviously the goodness of God, but also the truth of Scripture and also the conviction that you have understood the scriptures correctly and that what is commanded and commended here is indeed genocide, then you end up with a situation where you say, well, if Joshua and the Israelites had done this apart from God's command, of course, this would have been a crime and horrific. However, the fact that God commanded it changes everything because God is good, all his commands are good. To obey the good commands of a just God is always a good thing. So God is blameless and those who obey him are blameless. And therefore, the action that they carried out is without blame and is not atrocious. So that's how it works. Uh, in, and, and I think it has the advantage of being philosophically rigorous, uh, but it has the disadvantage of being uh, existentially unpalatable. <laughs> yeah, and... I, I think, um, I mean, that's my, my reaction to it. And so do you think that's, you know, as as advocates of this position try to make a case for it, what kind of response would they have to someone who say who says, I, you know, I find that so unsatisfying and actually abhorrent? Um, would Is the response just that, well, if God commands it, you have to kind of adjust your conceptions of justice to God's own commands? Exactly. I think that would be what, what advocates of this position uh, would focus on. And now, of course, uh, if you have the strong conviction that A, God is good, and that B, the Bible is true, and that C, you have read these texts correctly, then this has a certain plausibility to you. But for most of our contemporaries, it is much more likely that God is not good or, or that there is no God or that the Bible, a very old book, is not wrong in everything and uh, not right in everything that it says, um, especially in cases like this. So uh, our contemporaries would think, why would you go there? Why wouldn't you modify you know, what you say about God or what you say about the Bible? And you can see a classic example of that. Uh, when you read uh, a short article in the Guardian newspaper written by Richard Dawkins, the uh, eminent uh, biologist of Oxford University and, and sort of atheist polemicist, who attacks a Christian philosopher, eminent Christian philosopher, William Lane Craig, who takes more or less this divine command theory line and says, you know, why I won't debate here, uh, this 
uh, he calls him a deplorable apologist for genocide. Now, if you Google it, uh, just using the names of, 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 of Dawkins and Craig and, and genocide, you'll, you'll find it immediately. Uh, it's a prime example of effective propaganda. I mean, it's very much below the belt. It's very unfair. It begins with ad hominems uh, against William Lane Craig. So, it, so it, it, it's extremely unfair. But what it shows you is how easy it is in a sort of a, a, a secular or, or, or even a neutral context to shoot down uh, that line of argument and how effective this is rhetorically. And there are 1,400 comments that you could read mm. on that article <laughs> if, if you wanted to be persuaded how people feel about this way of thinking about it. Yeah, I'll make a point of scrolling through those later. Um, so, so, so the divine command theory, as as you discuss in your book and do a great job unpacking this, you you know it it was picked up by Aquinas and then later by Calvin and and other people along the way. You know, this held a massive sway over a Christian thinking about the problem of violence. What? So, so let's say for our listeners who who at a gut level find that abhorrent. What is the contribution of this view? What what do we still need to take away from it that might be useful in our thinking about the problem of violence in the Old Testament? Well, so I think it, it helps us in a number of ways. Uh, one, it does give us one way in which internally we can respond to the objection that uh, you have to give up your faith because there are irreconcilable contradictions in it. So if somebody presents this uh, tension between Old Testament and New Testament as a defeater to your faith and says, look, here's a problem, there's no way you can resolve it, you can say, actually, I can resolve it. It might not be palatable to you. It's not even existentially palatable to me, but I know it works philosophically, philosophically and intellectually. So therefore, your objection that says, unless you want to be uh, intellectually dishonest, you have to give up your faith, falls to the ground. I have at least one way of answering it. Now, in my opinion, it's always better to have more than one way, and I think there's more than one way of answering it. So it does that job for us. What it also does for us, it does, I think it is helpful, I mean, it's sort of, it's a, uh, to, to think about horrific things can be beneficial for us because it uh, makes us stop uh, and pause. It jolts us out of complacency and it's very drastic. I mean, these stories in Joshua, they're extremely drastic stories and they are there for a reason if we believe that the Bible is inspired, which I do. So we Basically, I think what Augustine, Aquinas, Calvin, and you know more recently Richard Swinburne help us do to say, listen, um, at least think about this, you know, and 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 how would it reframe? How would you think about your own life? How would you think about sin, the consequences of sin, sanctification, forgiveness, in light of the stark reality of death? And uh, so, I think there's a lot that we can learn. Uh, from that approach, it's just not, I, I, I think it would be, unfortunately, if someone felt that this was the only approach that Christians can mm. take. Mm. Yeah, and, and I suppose it also, as a, as a challenge to us, asks 
for those who, those of us who do take scripture as inspired, um, is are we going to set our own um, standards above the Bible standards or God's standards in our thinking about um, what's just and good and right um, in in terms of what God may have done in the past? Uh, I think I think for me one of the challenges of the divine command theory is that you you end up with a pretty radical disjunction between even revealed concepts of what justice is and what it should look like and God's own actions. And so you, you, there's this, it seems like an irreconcilable distance between what God has done in the past and what he then says in terms of how to act justly and, and pursue that in the world. Exactly. I think it can easily be an, an oversimplification, but I, I think you're quite right. And that's sort of um, a point that Augustine makes uh, in conversation with uh, one of the, his opponents, a Manichaean bishop, uh, where he says, you read the Bible in such a way as to remove all authority from the heart of the scriptures and to make each person his own authority for what he approves or disapproves of in any scripture. That is, each person is not subject to the authority of the scriptures for his faith, but subjects the scriptures to himself, with the result not that something is pleasing to him because he finds it written in that lofty authority, but that it seems correctly written because it has pleased him. And sort of that idea that scripture is a wax nose, wherever we don't like, or what the zeitgeist doesn't like, we sort of discard, and whatever we personally like or the zeitgeist likes, we embrace... I think that is a danger, and I think uh, Augustine was very aware of that kind of danger, and so he pushes very far the other way. But I think we can certainly learn from that, uh, and, and should learn from it as well, yes. Yeah, so you um, you also cover in your book, and, and again, we don't quite have time for this, but um, you, you talk about the, the use of harem texts in relation to the Crusades, the Inquisition, the conquest of the New World. Um, Without getting into all the details, what's your response when people raise those standard, that standard kind of set of three um, when talking about the use of the Bible in justifying violence? So it's a twofold response. One, I think the blanket statements that one finds in the literature, including in this uh, Roland Bainton's very influential book, uh, are hard to justify on the basis of the evidence. So if you actually go through crusading histories and songs and, uh, and so on, which, and, and sermons, which I did, you find there's a lot less reference to Joshua and the conquest than you might have expected. Which is not the same, however, as to say this had no influence at all. Because texts work in a way that they shape our social imaginary and what, what the way we think about the world in general. And the most influential texts perhaps do so without us ever quoting them. So I, I would never want to argue no, no, that one thing had nothing to do with the other. I think they actually had things to do one with another. And there are some examples where you find people appealing specifically to harem texts to justify massacres after they occurred. For instance, the Jerusalem massacre in July 1099 or a mass uh, massacre among the Pequot Indians 
in May 1637. So it, it, it does, there are incidents. Uh, these overt appeals to these texts are very much the exception, not the rule, but I think we have to be honest and say we probably cannot claim that these texts had, had no no influence. And now, of course, I think the problem is that not that people took the Bible too seriously, but that they didn't take Jesus seriously enough. Because if you take Jesus as a Christian, you read the Bible learning from Jesus seriously, then you will never uh, become violent in sort of trying to serve your own interests and expropriate others. So uh, for my money, Christians become violent not because they take Jesus too seriously, but they become violent because they don't take Jesus seriously mm -hmm. enough. So what's your own favored approach to the problem of violence? What's your way of wrestling with these difficult texts in Deuteronomy and Joshua? I don't have one approach where I say this is the one approach and I think everybody should read the text in this way. I actually find myself oscillating between the various approaches. Some of the approaches we haven't uh, yet discussed, uh, which are more recent ones. So big questions that I think we should bring to the table are questions like uh, what kind of progress is there in God's self-revelation? God doesn't tell us everything on the first page of the Bible or in the first encounter with the people of Israel, but God makes himself progressively clearer and clearer. That has to play a role in how we read the older texts in light of the newer texts, specifically in light of Jesus. Two, um, in what does it mean that a perfect, uh, all-knowing God stoops down to reveal himself to very imperfect, very little-knowing creatures? Well, there's a lot he cannot tell us and definitely not tell us all at the same time. Uh, Calvin called this accommodation. Now, that obviously happens on a cognitive level because we couldn't possibly understand everything there is to know and understand about the universe, but it also happens on a moral level. You see this most clearly when Jesus talks about divorce in the New Testament. He says, yes, Moses commanded you X, and that's Torah. That's the highest level of authority in Jesus' time in Judaism. That's the word of God, the law given through Moses. And yet Jesus says that actually was a concession to the hardness of your heart. That was not God's good and perfect will. So that allows us at least to ask the question, are there other bits of Torah and other parts of the Old Testament that are not an expression of God's good and perfect will, but a concession to the hardness of hearts to the violent nature of the times to specific needs of a specific community at one point in history so those are all things i would want to bring to the table and then i would want to ask questions about genre ancient near eastern conquest accounts i would want to ask about translations so the text itself i think uh, leaves question if you read it carefully and on, in one sentence you read that everybody was killed in a particular city in the next chapter you read of people living in that city. So if complete genocide is meant, who are these people? So you don't, just by carefully reading the text and by thinking theologically about the nature of Revelation, you'll see that it is not as clear cut as to say, well, either you take the Bible seriously and then you have to read it literally, by which I mean X, 
and therefore the only thing you can do is why maybe command theory actually you can take the bible very seriously and believe that it is truly the word of god and trustworthy inspired by the holy spirit and yet you come to different conclusions about what is actually said for instance by paying attention to the hebrew and to the historical context and many other narratives so i think sort of this historical reading of the text uh, also looking to the language and the genre and just carefully reading the text combined with the spiritual reading that we find in gregory the great and the glossa ordinaria and all these places that actually is a second equally ancient equally well attested way of reading these texts that sits alongside the augustinian line down through aquinas and calvin and and there may be other ways too so personally i find myself oscillating i i think okay so if 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 i'm today i'm going to sit with augustine and i'm going to listen to the scripture from you know listening to augustine and tomorrow i'm going to sit with gregory the great and with john cassian and listen to it from that perspective and then the third day i might say i'm going to read john walton and, and see you know what he as an old testament scholar has to say I mean, he had a book uh, out recently with his son uh, j harvey walton <coughs> the lost world of the israelite conquest where they question a lot of the assumed interpretations just from an old testament context so in in that way i find myself oscillating i find uh, we don't have to be dogmatic about every little question or even every big question that comes to us uh, as long as we are firm in what i take to be core for instance the creeds and i'm a, a creedal christian uh, then we can say well here actually there isn't a creedal determination of how we should read these texts the church has read it in different ways over the centuries and so we're free to do the same hmm. Well, Christian, I really appreciate uh, this book and the work that you've done, and I hope that our listeners take the opportunity to sit with your book and journey with all these great thinkers throughout history who have wrestled with this challenging but important question. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.